So he came back that evening. He said, we are buying a house in Grayton. I said, who's we? <laughs> number one. And number two, where is Grayton? Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 37 of My Way. My guest this week is one of the first people I met when I moved to Grayton. Shock of white hair, fantastic smile, and he always seemed to be running around the village busy with one initiative or another. And his name is Kuni Visser. And we don't see Kuni around town as much as we used to, but I saw him not too long ago at a coffee shop. And though he stated emphatically that his life story was boring, I refused to believe it, and I insisted that he come and sit down for a chat. So he did. And as always, I was grateful for it. So make yourself a cup of something, have a seat, and enjoy the conversation. Okay, my name is Kuni, um, Kuni Fasser. I've been, um, well, I've lived in Grayton for about 30 years, spending time in Grayton, spending time in Cape Town, and also travel as much as I can. I was born in a very small town, Afrikaans community of Paketberg. Now, Paketberg is in the Swartland, and very small community, small school. I was a big fish in a small pond, or was I a small fish in a big... No, I was a big fish in a small <laughs> pond, you know, being the head boy, right you know, into my sport, playing rugby, playing tennis, um, cricket, everything that had to do with the ball. I was there, wow. very keen sportsman. I remember when we were kids, my sister and I, I have a sister who's three years younger than me, and I think I must have been about six, seven, eight, and my parents would literally force us into their car and drive us all the way to Cape Town. Now, we're talking 130 kilometers to go to the old, I cannot even remember, it was the old, what's Artscape today, and they would take us to go and see ballets and operas and my sister and I cried all the way there right through the performance and all the way back because we hated it but my parents were just so keen to introduce us to a life out there bigger than this small uh, conservative community and today I, I'm grateful because I was introduced to the art at a very young age but I can also remember how I hated it at the time. I remember my mother and I remember, must remember I, I grew up in a very Afrikaans community, but we did know some English words at the time. And I remember my mother always called me otherwise. She says, why are you so otherwise? And I think when I thought, when I'm thinking back about, you know, those days now, it was like I was the boy who played rugby with my book in my left hand. So when there was a moment that the other boys would get together and eat their half a, you know, orange, you know, that we had in those days, that would be an opportunity for me to quickly read two more pages. So in that sense, I think I was a little bit different. I didn't think that at the time. I mean, you know, it didn't make sense to me at all. But now when I think back to it, yeah, uh, that must have been strange for my friends. You know, could he playing with them? Tennis, rugby, cricket. And the next moment he disappears, he sits behind a book. I'm in a tree and he's reading his book. 
I absolutely loved school. School for me was like, it was like my playground. It was like um, a place where I could see other people, uh, uh, friends. It was a place where I could be naughty. It was a place where I could be a very, very serious student. And I was, I mean, <laughs> to the point of being ridiculous. I was a very, very, very serious uh, student. Um, oh, I also had to because in those days, we, it was, well, I suppose it still is, but it was very important to get a bursary to go and study. And I was very lucky in that in that sense that I get did get a fantastic bursary so that I could do my st studies and not really get money from my parents. And when you were younger, did you have ideas in your head about what you wanted to be when you grew up? Sunny, that is again, um, oh goodness, no. The answer is no. Um, to be quite honest, I still don't know what I want to be. I, I think about it often, especially now that I'm older, I'm thinking, why can't I be a lawyer and be a lawyer and start my first job and I'm a lawyer and I'm a lawyer for 30 years and I retire and I'm a happy retired lawyer. What am I now? I'm, I'm, uh, if I have to tell people, if people ask me, what's your job? I, I'm actually a bit embarrassed because I don't have a job, a job job. And um, yeah, it's it's a case of a, a jack of all trades, master of none. You, you know yes, what I'm saying? Because absolutely. I do something for three or four years and I get bored. I, you know, teaching and then the restaurant and all the stuff that I did overseas. And I got a bursary from Afrikaans newspaper Die Burgo at the age of I think I was in my in grade 11. And uh, part of the conditions of the bursary was that. Uh, that I had to work there as you know during my school breaks so I was like 16 when I started working at the newspaper as a reporter general reporter and um, I mean I didn't even have a driver's license obviously at this at the time and I remember one of my very first jobs and actually very funny is that um, Sonny you way too young but there's a very famous English actress uh, called Hayley Mills oh, yeah. and you remember yes. par the parent the parent trap, trap something like that yes. yeah uh, uh, she was a very famous child uh, uh, actress I remember seeing all those movies with Hayley Mills and I got I, I think it was my second day and there was a phone call to the general office where I was my desk was and there was not a single reporter and the 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 um, editor said well Kuni then you have to go Hayley Mills is in Cape Town she's on some big uh, ship and she's uh, having a press conference and you must go and I remember I mean I, I couldn't even speak English I mean I'm this Afrikaans boy from this Afrikaans village and um, I just phoned the photographer I said you have to take me because I can't walk there it's too far from where I worked you know get to the harbor and he said yeah you'll take me long story short I got on the ship I um, was very fortunate that the director I think his name was Dirk de Villiers he was a very famous director in those days and he called me aside and he said to me um you young boy is this your first job because I must have been I must have looked like you know, I was at death's door. He said, is this your first job? And I said, can you tell? He says, yes. He says, come. So he took me into her cabin where Hayley Mills, I mean, I was starstruck. I couldn't say a word. I remember, Sunny, and I'm actually too embarrassed to tell anyone this, but that was in the year that, that Annalyn Creel became Miss World. By default, remember she was Annalyn Creel was Miss South Africa, and she was a runner-up. And then the actual winner had an illegitimate child that they discovered afterwards, and they stripped her of her title. Annalyn Creel, Miss South Africa, became Miss World. And 
Oh, 73, 74. Ah, Those, you I know. Was just a twinkle. Well, there you are. All right. It makes me feel very good. <laughs> anyway, so um, I remember one of the first questions I asked her is, was, um, what do you think of Anna Krilasma's world? And Haley Mills looked at me and she said, who? And I was <laughs> horrified. I thought, you don't know Miss World? Everyone in the world knows Miss World? You, Haley Mills, you don't know Miss World? And it's only when I got back to the office and I told the rest of the reporters, they said, oh, man, don't be so stupid. What does she know about Miss World? Miss World is just a pretty girl. There's some people know about her, some don't. But, yeah, so I don't want to meet Haley Mills again because I'm oh still embarrassed. <laughs> So I started working as a reporter and also, you know, I studied journalism at university. And then um, I, you know, was, well, I worked at the Burger at the, the uh, newspaper as a court reporter. And, oh, my goodness, I made so many mistakes. Um, but then after a year, it was like, oh, now I'm bored. And then I thought, well, let me go back to university. And I got a position there for, uh, as a lecturer at Stellenbosch University. And mm, wasn't quite because I wasn't an academic. I was too, not clever enough. And the people around me were all like doing, doing their PhDs. And I was like, I oh, can't think of anything more boring than sitting down and trying to study for a PhD. Then I got a position at the old Cape Technicon, still as a teacher, or those days we called ourselves lecturers, in District 6, you know, that, that yeah. area. So I was there for quite a few years. I did anything from, um, well, English, Afrikaans, communication, and Kosa, because I, that was one of my majors at university. That's something people don't know about me. Oh. So I, I um, did that for quite a few years, and I got really involved in that because... I studied, it was one of my majors, but I couldn't really speak it. You know, it was like sort of textbook also. And then I just knew, look, now you've got students, and they were the PR students, they were intelligent students. And I just realized, look, Boykin, now you have to do something about this. So I would go to the townships every weekend, um, go to church on a Sunday morning, and just go and sit there and, and try and you know, learn the language, get used to the sound of how the people speak out there and not the textbook. Mm -hmm. And um, got into trouble a couple of times because in those days, remember, it was a, a, a white skin in a township was not a general site, you know. It was, mm -hmm. you know, I had one or two phone calls uh, from someone saying, what are you doing in the township? And I would say, who are you? And click, you know, so I never <laughs> knew who phoned me. Oh, wow. But then I remember being called up to do camps, uh, army camps, and, um, you know, we would, oh, Sunny, you know, I can't believe I lived through that, but we, they would put all these soldiers on this big truck, which we called a buff, a buffalo, buffalo mm. these big army trucks, and we would go into the townships at night, and, you know, you have these lights that you shine into the houses looking for, I don't know what, and um, they soon realized, or someone realized, that I could speak Kosa. And I then became the spokesperson between, you know, the two sides, if you want to. Because obviously yeah. it, it wasn't a friendly thing. A um, translator. Exactly. So I would go out and, and that to me was fantastic. It wasn't like army, you know. People got to know me and they invited me into their homes and I would have tea and beer and what have you with, yeah. with a, in my army uniform. But at least... Um, I didn't feel that I was one of the bad ones with a gun in my hand, although, you know, we had to have guns. So, yeah, I lived through that as well. And then after that, I had to do camps, you know, wow. like they would call you up for three months or even if you, you know, if you're in your job that, yeah. you know, you just, you were called up. So you had to just drop everything and go to the army. Yeah, two years. After that, what happened after that? Uh, 
of course, uh, I got bored. And then I started a translation company. Now, you must remember in those days, again, here was this person who could speak an African language. So I was in huge demand because what happened was that companies, big, big, big companies, I'm not going to mention names now, um, got into this whole, I don't know whether it was guilt or whether it was because they were scared, but all of a sudden they put hundreds of their staff on a Kosa course. They now had to, the staff or the workers now had to learn to speak closer because this is now the new South Africa. Mm. It was just before the elections. So, of course, I mean, I worked and that was the only time in my life I had money because, I mean, these companies were just throwing money at this person who could go in. But I hated that because now they would put people who, were, you must remember, most of them were like, oh, you know, we don't like the new South Africa and we're not, you know, and now they are being forced to go and learn a black language. So it was a nightmare. And, you know, I never, I mean, I don't think they ever got further than Molo, you know, yeah, which, yeah. because they they were just not into learning. But, yeah, so I did that for a couple of years. And I realized that I, probably first of all was that maybe not the right thing for me to be teaching Kosa. Mm. You need to find someone who in the mother tongue, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I would then go and train some of the African, let me call it, if I may, black uh, uh, academics um, who would then um, take over from me. But I would, I, I facilitated it for a year or two yeah. uh, just to get, uh, I got that up and running also at the Cape Technicon. Okay. What happened after that? Oh, then a very bad thing happened in my life. Mm. Mike, my friend and ex-partner Mike, decided to come to an art party, if you want, by an artist called Catherine Painter. <laughs> yes, who has been on the podcast. Catherine Painter, I wonder whether she knows this. Catherine Painter, well, she knows about the party. She used to have these most fabulous, unbelievable, over-the-top, free-for-all parties. I think it was linked to opening of an exhibition or something like that. But she was famous all over the, I was going to say the globe, for her wonderful parties. Now, I wasn't really into art those days, but Mike said to me one morning, I'm going to Grayton, there's this uh, uh, artist, Catherine Painter, and I'm going to one of her exhibitions. I said, okay, off you go. So he came back that evening and he said, we are buying a house in Grayton. I said, who's we? <laughs> Number one. And number two, where is Grayton? And he said, no, Grayton, you know, it's this little village in the calendar. I said, you must be joking. I'm not going to go and sit in the Hamadullahs. I mean, you know. Okay, long story short, the next weekend we came. We stayed at the post house. Uh, lovely. Um, the central bar was still the bar where they served food. I told Anton the other day, I think the best hamburger and chips I ever had in Grayton was at the village pub in those days. It was fantastic. It was this huge pub with this counter. I remember in the red, um, what do you call the, the fabric? Uh, um, vinyl. Yes, vinyl. Yes, yes, yes. That kind of look. It was fantastic. I mean, I, I was there all the time. We had, you know, the pub lunch and you could have dinner. Um, and that Sunday night we had a property. Just down the road from you in Flay Street. I was still at the Technicon. I was still doing the translation thing, which turned into a nightmare uh, because I got bored. And then one day I walked into a tiny little shop. It is now the estate agent. I don't know the name. 
first of all, many years ago, it was a satellite bank for First National Bank. And it was open, I think, on a Tuesday and a Thursday morning. I stand corrected now, but two days, two mornings, it was the bank. So you would go to the bank. You didn't have to go to Caledon. And then, of course, they I don't think that there were enough people, so they closed that. Then it became a little shop where you could buy anything from a shoe to a tin of pulchets. It was just one of those typical little shops. And the owner was Anna Elisabettini. You know Anna who's got the uh, uh, um, the straws, uh, the, the, the oh, cheese straws? straws. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Uh, it was her building. And she opened this little shop. It was fantastic. You, like I said, it was just like one of those places where you can buy the old sweets and stuff. Um, anyway, so I walked into her shop one day. She was sitting there all by herself. And I said, Anna, um, if you ever want to sell this little business, tell me. Because by that time, I was bored with anything. You know, I just wanted to do something completely different. And she said, no, man, I'm not going to do that. And um, that same evening she phoned. She said, are you really interested? And, okay, again, long story short, I became the owner of a little shop. Um, now, at the time, I was still commuting between Cape Town and Grayton, you know, four days in Grayton, three days in, in, in I mean, Cape Town and three days in Grayton. And then, of course, the weekend gets longer and longer and longer. Yes. And you have four days and five days in Grayton. So I had this little shop. And then we always looked at the building next door, which belonged to also a very well-known person, older people in Great Northern Rome, Chris Janssen. He was a photographer um, who lived and worked in that building. And um, it was an antique shop at one stage. It had many different, because he rented it out, or parts of the shop. And I always looked at that building, Mike and I. And then my dad died, and he left me a few rand, and again... You know, we don't think, we just do. Next thing, we were the owners of this building, and now what do we do with this? And that's how the Oak and Vine was born. Yeah, I remember the early days of, of the Oak and Vine. It was very clear in my mind that it was only going to be coffee and cake. And then uh, my friend Linda Grunewald, another character in the village, she um, offered to help me because I was still commuting and leaving the shop in the hands of staff and she said no she will help me run the place and she phoned me one day she said there's someone here who is hungry and he was asking for a sandwich and I said no we don't do sandwiches and, and I said how are you going to do it anyway and she unbeknown to me ran up to her house fetched her toaster ran back to the oaken vine and made this person a Toasted sandwich, I don't know what it looked like, but it must have been a good one because then I had more and more requests and the next thing it was a restaurant. But it wasn't intended to be. It was going to be a tiny little coffee shop, one section of the shop, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually turned into a monster because it's 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 right. it's huge. I think Grayton uh, is a little bit spoiled because if you go to any other village, I mean, you go to Paketberg, my hometown, mm. You, who I hope no Paquette Burgers are listening to this, but it is not easy to find a place where you can have a decent coffee. And many of these small towns, and then you come into Grayton, and I mean, you can go to any restaurant here and you'll have a decent cappuccino. Oh, goodness, I remember when we first served cappuccinos, and I probably, we were probably the first in the village, people would all say, no man, what's this? You know, give us, give us coffee. You know, we want coffee. So I think we just a little bit spoiled. And yeah. I include myself. Do you know, with this whole new vibe of the cyclists and the whole thing of nature, um, uh, uh, you know, I think that's amazing for this yeah. village. I, 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 for one, I'm very excited.
it wasn't our intention, but we've discovered very soon that we were actually copying Melissa's. Now, Melissa's at the time was like the place in Cape Town. And we sort of created a vibe or a, a place based on what Melissa's did and also Giovanni's. Well, I'm flattering myself now because Giovanni's is just amazing. But we became very friendly with the owner of Giovanni's and he helped us quite a lot with the kind of product. You know, I was very, I was a monster in those days. I probably still am, but in those days as a businessman, because I just wanted to create something that was completely different. And I would say to my suppliers, if you go to that shop and you sell the same product at that shop, you, you're out of here. You go to Oakenbind for a certain ice cream or for a certain biscuit or a certain, and oh, I can tell you hundreds of stories of how I had to manage that. I even, I had to bring stuff in from Cape Town, even ice cream. I would get in my house. I had a whole like sort of a garage full of uh, fridges and deep freezers in a house in the Ranjazat, and I would pack all the stuff, the chips and the meringues. Now you know how delicate meringues are um, that they used to sell at Melissa's, and um, then I bought ice cream from a good friend of mine. It's called Nice Ice Cream, and I would I remember that the very everything was in the car plus my dogs or some of them. Then I would had all the stock and it even salad packs, and I would get in my car and then. I would not stop even if you paid me, even if you sh shot me or because I had to get to Grayton and I would phone my staff when I left and I said, one hour and 10 minutes, you are at the door, fridge is open. It's a matter of we stop, they grab the stuff straight to the fridge or the deep fridge or whatever and I had my product that no one else had. But now it's difficult because now people don't, uh, I think uh, restaurants, I think, don't drive far to go and get their product because everything is delivered. Right. In those days, right. it wasn't really. It was only the bread and the milk, you know, that they delivered to, to great. Now you can get anything. Yeah, so we had, to, look, we had good times. We had, uh, it was before your time, but we had unbelievable parties and functions and <clears throat> fashion shows and um, evenings where we invited celebrities to come, well, South African celebrities to come and, and meet people. I remember one night uh, we had the opening of the building next door where Vintage de Vogue is now. We called it Scarlet. And Mike and I still talk about Scarlet because that was what it was called, his art, art gallery. And we invited three drag queens. And <clears throat> Sunny, it was hysterical because, first of all, they were like real real drag queens, not just a man in a dress. I mean, they were basically, well, they were girls. And we had them in a, a cabriole, someone's very fancy car in the back of the car, and they were driving through the village, and everyone came to this party. And these three girls mingled with the, well, yeah. guests. Yeah. And, I mean, it was it was hilarious, because some of the guys got very friendly with these girls and never realized that they were not... <laughs> Girls, it was, I mean, great people that lived here at the time will tell you. So we had a lot of that. I, I throw at the time, to me, that was my, um, you know, because the restaurant life, of course, I got bored very quickly. And I had to do all these events and things and trying to bring people into Grayton. And that, of course, you know, everything is like a little puzzle. Because now I'm the businessman. I'm sitting in a restaurant. It's bigger than we anticipated it was going to be. And it, the weekend trade was amazing because, you know, people came from all over to come to the Oak and Vine. During the week, it was still quiet, so like it is still today. Mm -hmm. So I had to – and then, of course, in winter time, the village was dead. So at the time, I was involved with uh, tourism and um, – 
uh, I, I said, look, guys, we have to do something, some kind of a festival, because at the time it was only the Rose Fair. We have to do something in winter to bring feet to Grayton and for people to see what Grayton is like in winter with all these little cozy fires yeah. and, you know, the, and that's how the music festival started. The Classics Fall. It was, at the time, it was called the Winter Festival. Just a winter festival. But I was very strict in the sense that I said to them, whatever the Rose Fair does, we don't. Because it's no good having two... Because before you know it, the festivals are basically the same. Yeah, it, it wasn't going to be a music festival. It was just a winter festival where we had all kinds of winter activities, you know, the hiking and, you know, but not, not nothing to do with gardens or rose fair is or even the market wasn't like the rose fair market we said it was only going to be the locals like it is now you know right. on a saturday but it's a little bit bigger then uh, it got to a stage maybe the second or third year when i talked to a friend of mine zahn stapelberg who's an opera singer and i said don't you want to come and do a concert she said yes i said but we can't pay you and um, she said i'll bring my friend francois de tour who's a very well one of the best pianists in south africa and I talked to him. He said, yeah, I'll do it for free. And we did two concerts and we sold maybe 50 tickets for each concert. Mm. And and then, yeah, 16 years later, here we have a festival. That's, you know, I don't know much about classical music. Um, and the thought of sitting through a, a, a concert at the, you know, for an hour and listening to heavy classical music, it, it would kill me. Um, so I was invited, Jenny Loyner, another lady in the village, invited me to go to a concert by Andre Ruhr or someone like that. He's a German or Austrian, uh, he's got this huge band and they come to South Africa once every two years and they play classical music, but it's jolly classical music. You know, it's, and I was like, oh no, I don't want to be, be seen dead in a concert like that. It's all the, you know, sort of. Hoi polois go to that kind of concert. And yes, there were hoi polois. I was one of them. And what I experienced that night was this huge, wonderful band playing classical music, but people actually dancing in the aisles. And I'm talking about my people, you know, Afrikaans, Wemis and Tanis, and, well, not only, but we know what I'm saying, yeah. my, my people. And I'm like, what's happening here? It's classical music and people are enjoying it. And I came back and I spoke to whoever on the committee. I said, let's do a classical music, but for everyone. Mm -hmm. It must be a classical music. It must be classical music that I can also enjoy. So I would sit in the audience. I would listen to the music. I don't know whether it's Bach or Beethoven. I'm not sure. But I recognize the music and I can appreciate the music. Mm. Um, And that, I think, is why it has become popular because what we try and do it is classics for all so we would have serious music because you have to have you know have to cater for the connoisseurs but you also have light classical music maybe music that like in the movies they mm. you don't even realize that they are compositions you know by classical or right. by 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 um, uh, composers and then you hear the music but you can still recognize and say yeah i like that song yeah. you know i yeah. know that and i think that is probably why if I may say so, the festival has become very successful. Mm. And, and, and I mean, last year, well, this year, record sales. And, and it's always a good feeling that, you know, that your sponsors, that they know, okay, we, we didn't have much money, and that is not the idea, but at least we could give some money to our charity. And that is a fantastic feeling.
it was about eight years ago that I just realized that, uh, I mean, I've always known that Gnadendal uh, people are very into their music. And, you know, Sunny, interesting, uh, someone told me, you know, someone from Gnadendal that many, many years ago, and maybe not even that many, just about every single house in Gnadendal had a piano. They're not there anymore because, you know, I suppose through poverty, people started selling their pianos. You will not believe how many talented, musically talented people are in Gnadendal. Unbelievable. That's a study in itself. One day one can go and say, find all these hidden artists. They are somewhere. Some of them are obviously now much older. But they are lots of pianos in in, in Gnadendal in their homes. I then I you know started talking to um, people in Hanarden and I just realized, come on guys, you know it's just there are ways of getting to know our neighbors and one would be or could be through music mm. and um, that again to me and it's just like my own little when I'm in my own little space and I say, Kuni, you know you don't want people out there to say you are fantastic, but I'm gonna say this to myself now in my corner in my room where no one sees no one hears. Mm. Well done, Kuni. Because um, I think we, and I want to say I, but we, people helping me, have achieved something with bringing the communities, even if it's just for a month after the festival, when, you know, you see the kids walking around with a tin and a stick and they're hitting the, you know, or making a little guitar out of a tin and um, and singing and, and getting involved in choirs because we invite local choirs every year and what, yes. what it's doing. You know, the kids, they, you know, they, they want to be part of a group where they can produce these wonderful sounds. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm very excited about that. I think I could do more if I lived here permanently. And I feel a bit guilty because there's room for many things in terms of development in our communities. But um, we're trying. We're yeah. trying our best. We're doing all kinds of things again for next year. Every year, the next day, what do you think I say after a festival? I'm never doing this again. Never doing this again. For 15 years, I've been 16 years, I've been saying this. I am out of here. I'm even leaving the country. I'm going to live in another country to get away from this music festival, and here I am. Sunny, I think it's difficult. I think one thing that people probably don't know about me is that I am a complete introvert. I am very, very, very shy. I do not have much confidence. I cannot walk into a room where there are 30 or 40 people. I, I, I would always go th- through the back door. Um, I'm the one who would be standing in the corner. But then, you know, in my job, I had to overcome that. I mean, I did a lot of public speaking in my younger days. I was the compare for from beauty contest to strongman contest. That, you know, that was my job. Um, and still today, I... Um, like the music festival, for instance, I have to make announcements and thank the sponsors and all that. But I die every time I have to do it. No one knows that because I just go and stand behind the door and I just, yeah, I don't know how am I going to do it? How am I going to get through this? Um, and even my friends say, but, you, you know, it looks like you've got a lot of confidence. I don't. I drive past the old potters and I see 50 people sitting there and I'm thinking, I can't do it. I can't stop here and get out of my car and go and sit there. I want to. I'm dying to. Unless I see someone that I that know, you know I can now there. go to that table and sit there and, and blend in. Um, but it's, it's it's something that I really have to work 
work on. It's it's not it's not easy. I don't know. Maybe people know that, but yeah, and 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 that is is is, is difficult in many ways because sometimes I sit in the farm, um, a bit secluded and you know up in the mountain, and I'm thinking, what what's wrong in this picture? Why am I not surrounded by people? Why don't I? Uh, but then I get a phone call and someone says, come for dinner. I'm like, I'm actually busy tonight. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not busy. I'm sitting on my couch watching crappy movies or reading a, a, a book or whatever. I, no, I'm not. Uh, and, and but you know, people know me well. We say, oh, we know you're not going out tonight. Come, we're waiting. And then, you know, I'll make, you know, get in the car. And then I'll have a fantastic evening. Right. What kinds of things bring you the most pleasure now? Um, the fact that I'm in a position that I can travel. I, I lived in Thailand for five years. Okay. I've just come back. Um, and um, I'm hoping to to go back there in the future, maybe next year. Um, I've really fallen in love with the East. Um, Thailand, there's opportunities there for me. Cambodia, um, Myanmar, opportunities. The, the the saddest thing is, yes, you've got all these opportunities, but now you, there's something like a birth certificate and there's a figure, a number on that certificate that you don't always, one forgets. I forget it all the time. And I'm thinking I'm still 25. But there comes a time that you can't do these things. And job-wise now, also, you know, in your physical ability, but I'm talking about job-wise. So it's almost like I want to cram everything into the few years that I can still do that and 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 and, and travel uh, um, it gives me great joy to be on the farm with my animals you know i've got i don't even want to tell people how many animals i have but there's a lot of dogs and there's horses and alpacas and donkeys and um chickens and 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 you know it's it's fantastic for me i mean i'm not a farmer please i mean it's a joke but getting getting up in the morning when the staff are not there on weekends for instance um and you know it's a routine you feed the dogs to get them quiet take them for a walk to get them relaxed and relax then move on to the chickens and make them happy feed them and make sure that they're out and they're safe then move on to the alpacas and then move on to the it's a routine and it's it's almost like the animals know the routine because they stand there waiting patiently, you know, give the food to the alpacas and the horses keep their distance and the donkeys keep their distance until it's their turn. So, yeah, that gives me joy. Okay, so what do you feel like this village has taught you? Um, the village has taught me a lot of things uh, I, I can only say good things about about Grayton um, it saved my life at a time where things were just going too hectic for me in Cape Town um, especially you know if you have this thing of getting bored and you want to do different things and all of a sudden there are a million different hats that you can wear in a big city and I just had to you know approach life differently um, look, greatness taught me a lot of things. Uh, you know, not always. I mean, they were difficult times, and and it's maybe got to do with the fact that I'm a sensitive person, and there's always criticism. And you know, when you have a restaurant, that's why I've got a lot of respect for anyone who's got a restaurant in this village. Or let me put it this way: anyone who puts up his hand, who says I am going to do this, and I'm going to, um, that person is is a target. Unfortunately, and I don't mean it in a bad way, and I don't want people, great people now to say, oh, who do you think you are to make a statement like that? But um, I've, I've learned to maybe withstand that 
and to say to hell with that. I mean, I know people criticize me because they think I'm only doing it for my own pocket or just at the time for the oak and vine. Um, so I've, I think, I don't know whether it makes sense what I'm saying now, Sunny, it but it, it has taught me just a little bit more. Don't, although I'm a sensitive person, don't let it allow it to get to you in such a way that you cannot do the things that you really enjoy doing right. there you are that's right. that's what i mean yeah. so um yes i'm enjoying the, doing the music festival yes there's people who you know don't say but there's also a lot of people who are saying good things yeah. so can you come on concentrate on the good things and not always on the on the negative right. and i think that's what i've i've learned here and when I meet someone for the first time, especially now that I've been away for a while, and people say, oh, I've heard about you. And I go, and, and my first reaction, yeah, my first reaction is, oh, my God, no, please. What did you hear? It's not true. What a stupid thing. Oh, the battles you know? from within. The battles <laughs> from within. But, you know, we survive. We have. I hope you enjoyed this refreshingly honest conversation with Kuni. I found myself nodding my head profusely during the bit about being nervous in crowds and the quirkiness of being a recluse in this town. I totally get that. And I think, I don't know, I think maybe a lot of you out there get it too. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes. This is a huge help for the podcast and it only takes a moment to scroll down and click the number of stars you think it deserves. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. See you next time.